Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 10 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. If you missed episode 9, go back to learn all about the other Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers Baby Stars of 1925. June Marlowe, Lola Todd, Anne Cornwall, Dwayne Thompson, Betty Arlen, and Madeline Herlock. Frankly, I have too much to say about the second half of 1925's Baby Stars, so forgive me for leaping on in. Let's boogie. Ina Gregory From February 18, 1920, in Variety Mr. and Mrs. Phil Selznick, H. Fine, and Ina Gregory were among the arrivals on the Ventura from Australia last week. Miss Gregory, reported to be an Australian picture actress, is 11 years old and the daughter of a wealthy importer-exporter of Australia. Little Ina was 12, not 11, in a rare case of the news not inflating preteens' ages. She was born in New South Wales, Australia on April 18, 1907, which is supported by Australian records. Giving her some grace and not pretending that she was much older than she was is something that wouldn't really happen again. She's consistently reported as being in her mid to late teens within a year or two of her arrival, and playing adult roles as soon in a number of shorts. Little side note, her birth year has been reported as late as 1915, but this is absurdly incorrect. Anyway, in 1923, she landed feature-length pictures. Two not-quite-impressive reviews. Ina Gregory can't be convincingly sad, says the film daily about her in The Law Wrestlers, but she is rather pretty. She continued to bop around in shorts for the foreseeable. One of her more notable colleagues during this time period is a pre-Laurel and Hardy Stan Laurel. Ina appeared with him in several Roach Studio two-reelers. This is kind of random, but Stan's then-common-law wife, Mae Dahlberg, was also Australian, just like Ina. Both Aussies appeared in the same shorts with Stan, as he always insisted that his partner get at least a small role in any of his pictures. That is, up until mid-1924 or so, when he signed a production deal with Joe Rock. The contract stipulated that May could not appear in any of the films, and shortly after, so legend has it, Joe Rock gave May a one-way ticket back to Australia to get her out of Stan's life forever. Ina didn't join Stan Laurel in that Joe Rock deal, but at least she wasn't sent home across the Pacific. 1925 brought her the Wampus Baby Stars list, and quite a bit of buzz. She was signed with Universal, and was placed in westerns, opposite cowboy stars like Hood Gibson and Jack Hoxie. It's reported in the Exhibitor's Herald on September 12, 1925, that Ina met with an onset accident. Ina Gregory, actress, was burned severely when thrown from the rear end of a prairie schooner into the path of a forest fire, in the making of a western at Deadwood, South Dakota. The same publication mentions a few weeks later that she and Jack Hoxie had just returned from Deadwood after filming a picture called The Overland Trail. I tried to figure out what The Overland Trail became because neither Ina nor Jack has a film by that exact title released during this time period. In trying to figure that out and failing, what I did uncover is that, very possibly, on the same production that Ina got hurt, she seems to have recovered just fine, she met her husband. Al Rogel, the mascot director, has completed his twin pictures The Overland Trail and Red Hot Leather, featuring Jack Hoxie, and is busy editing and titling both productions, says the motion picture director paper in November 1925. Al... Albert Rogel, was a young hotshot director, just 24 years old when he made those twin productions. Red Hot Leather, by the way, also featured Ina. There's a cute little winking story in the Exhibitor's Herald from November 1926, 
Albert Rogel, first national director, is spending part of his vacation between pictures in directing one of the most elaborate film tests ever shot, with a beautiful young woman as the subject. His subject happens to be Ina Gregory. Their engagement was announced around the same time, the autumn of 1926. Quite a bit of the reporting about their romance mentions how they promised Ina's mother that they would wait to get married. Lassoed by Cupid, says the motion picture director in October 1926, below a shot of Al and Ina with two horses. In other words, none other than Al Rogel, film director, who has dignified the lowly horse opera, and his bride-to-be, Ina Gregory, lovely young leading lady. A two-year's wait is in the offing for this recently engaged couple, for they have promised Ina's mother to wait that length of time before taking the fatal leap. Pitcher Play similarly insisted that they were going to wait as Ina's mother said, I'm not going to try an Australian accent, Ina, being 19, is still such a youngster. They didn't wait. Al and Ina eloped on December 23, 1926. Her love story got more attention than her career had ever done, and things didn't really improve. There's a lot of pretty thankless westerns in her filmography. Ina was feeling unfulfilled, discouraged, and about ready to quit showbiz altogether. Then, according to a feature in Picture Play's February 1928 edition, husband Al suggested she make a change. Goodbye, Ina! Hello, Marion! It screams below a picture of Ina with jazz hands. She hated her nose, the piece said, so Al told her, well, change it then. And a trip to the plastic surgeons was arranged. And she hated her name, that was her biggest complaint, so again, Al basically said, stop complaining about it and go do something. Thus, a numerologist was called for advice. The numerologist, quite conveniently as far as I'm concerned, felt that the very best name for Ina would be two of the biggest movie stars' names squished together. Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks. Thus, it was announced that Ina Gregory would now be Marion Douglas. I've said it before, I'll say it again. A name change when there is any recognition at all with the original name is a tough sell. You've got to get in early with these things. But I will say that while Ina slash Marion still never became a big star, she actually did okay after the change and stuck with it. Realistically, her trajectory likely wasn't changed wildly by either her new nose or her new name, as she continued to appear mostly in westerns. By the sound era, she was relegated to shorts and small supporting roles. She made her final on-screen appearance in 1931. Ina and Al divorced in 1934. It was messy, and another man was named in the proceedings. She briefly married again, and then reportedly became a successful Laguna Beach real estate agent. So, the Wampas didn't quite hit their mark. But a twice-divorced ex-actress with a new nose and a belief in numerology, with an Australian accent selling luxury Californian properties... If she lived today, Ina Gregory would have her own reality show, and that would make her a much bigger star than she ever was in her own time. Violet LaPlante When Violet LaPlante decided to grace the silver screen, it was 1924, and her elder sister, Laura LaPlante, was making good on the promise of her 1923 inclusion on the Wampus Baby Stars list becoming indispensable to her studio, Universal. It's not totally fair to say that Violet was only included on the Wampus Baby Stars list because of her sister's success. But at the same time, it is very likely that producers were eager to get her in the projects because of her sister's success, giving her more of a buzz leading up to the list, so six of one, half a dozen of the other. She landed in four features and two shorts, all in her first year on the screen. Then, right around the time that the Baby Stars list was announced, Violet decided, perhaps wanting to prove her merit outside of her sibling, that she'd rather be known as Violet Avon. This is how she's referred to in the Wampus Baby Stars announcements and publicity surrounding the list. 
And yet, if this was an attempt to separate her identity from Laura's, it really didn't work. Almost every mention of her includes a sister of Laura LaPlante, or Laura LaPlante's sister. Which makes perfect sense. It acts as a reference point for the reader who wouldn't have ever seen someone named Violet Avon before, even if they had caught any of her 1924 films. Universal, Laura's studio, who'd also signed Violet, appear to have either not gotten the memo or ignored it completely, as they billed her with the LaPlante surname in The Hurricane Kid. It was released in January 1925. She had a small supporting role as Joan's friend. It proved to be Violet's sole film that year. This pace of work continued, and Violet, dropping the Avon name as quickly as she had picked it up, again only made one film in 1926 and one film in 1927. Meanwhile, Laura's career was going from strength to strength. In the August 16, 1927 issue of the film Daily, there is a snippet that cuts right to the bone. Laura's sister in U Western Hollywood. Violet LaPlante, younger sister of Laura LaPlante, is playing with Bob Kerwood in The Valiant Rider, a universal short-length western. This is Violet's first appearance. It was not... At least the next year, Violet was a little busier, with supporting roles in two features and appearing in one whole short. There's a piece in Picture Play's August 1928 edition called Pull Hasn't Helped Them At All. It talks of all kinds of family members of the stars who have failed to use their connections to get anywhere of note. They wonder why a bright, pleasant girl like Violet hasn't gotten a break especially when her sister is a Universal star and then-brother-in-law William Cedar was an influential director. But influence does little for Violet, so she continues to bloom modestly among the independents, waiting for luck to signal her. The year of 1928 would prove to be the last one of Violet's career. It must suck to be the Ashley Simpson the Haley Duff, the, um, Noah Cyrus, is that a timely enough reference? It must suck to be the Violet LaPlante next to the Laura. It was a swing and a miss for the Wampas. Joan Meredith According to the Exhibitor's Trade Review in October 1924, Joan Meredith first made a splash, if you'll pardon the pun, when she appeared as the bathing girl on Mermaid Studios' float in the Better Movies Day parade in Los Angeles. She had just turned 18 when a couple of months later, the Wampas named her as a baby star and had, as of then, appeared in no credited roles. Personality is a word hard to define, but anyway, Joan Meredith has it in superabundance, said Motion Picture Magazine in the April 1925 issue. She's a piquant, vivacious brunette. I'm not sure how much personality she had shown so far, but it must have been some parade float. Not long after being named a baby star, Joan was signed with Chadwick Pictures. Originally just a distributor, Chadwick Pictures began producing its own films in 1924. Not high-end stuff, though. At least they did give Joan her first credited role, a supporting one, that of Delight Burns in Blue Blood, 1925, and a few more small roles in non-event pictures followed before she finally got a break. Joan was named as Bill Cody's leading lady. Bill, a cowboy and a stuntman, was still pretty new to Hollywood himself. 1926's King of the Saddle was one of his earliest starring vehicles, and though a solidly B-Western, it was popular with its audiences. This review from November in the Exhibitor's Herald from Carmel, California theater owner O.B. Junkins, great name, sums it up nicely. King of the Saddle, Bill Cody. 
the second one I have played of this chap and a darn good one. Brought more business and more favorable comments than anything I have played recently. Plenty of action and comedy. Not rough or offensive. Excellent for Saturday in small towns. More power to you, Bill. There's no mention of Leading Lady Joan, though. In fact, her mentions are few and far between. Being a leading lady in a western, though typically not a particularly glamorous role, had been used time and time again as a stepping stone to other things, or as a way to grow audience recognition and popularity. But for Joan, for whatever reason, it didn't help her out one bit. It may have been because Bill Cody was still being established himself, or perhaps because his films were so focused on showcasing his talents, more power to you, Bill, indeed, that Joan wasn't given enough to do to warrant attention. Or perhaps they didn't have enough chemistry together. But whatever happened, she wouldn't play Bill's leading lady again. By 1928, Joan was without a contract and relegated to the world of shorts and rare, minuscule supporting roles. Originally from Arkansas, Joan made her way back home where she was given the movie star treatment from her home state crowds. She did a number of personal appearances at theaters there, introducing earlier films like King of the Saddle and the 1928 in-color one-reeler Marchetta. Says a theater owner from the Swan Theater, Miss Meredith has a very pleasing appearance and sure can talk. If the talkies are a success, I imagine that's where she will land. The talkies were a success, of course, but... Joan failed to land anywhere else in the world of film, and Marchetta would prove to be her final appearance, though she did return to California, where she married twice and spent the rest of her days. She may have had personality in superabundance, but there's no indication that that shone through on the silent screen. And I guess she could talk, but it was too little, too late. Naturally, the Wampus weren't right about Joan Meredith. Evelyn Pierce Evelyn Pierce is the most recent girl among the thousands of extras in Hollywood to win screen prominence, says the Moving Picture World's June 13, 1925 edition. Despite her beauty and considerable acting talent, this girl from Texas struggled for three years to attain recognition. Now she has been signed by the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Stock Company and will receive some important roles in that organization's forthcoming productions. Eh, would she? Evelyn, whose surname was spelled P-E-I-R-C-E, but often misspelled the, um, correct way, was yet another of the Wampus Baby Stars of 1925 to have done very little before being put on the list. That she had a three-year struggle to get noticed is an oft-repeated part of her story, one that seems pretty impossible to verify because who knows how many auditions she went for and didn't get. But she was named as one of the ladies in the court in a short parody of Robin Hood filmed in 1922. So, bingo bingo, I believe her struggle. Born around 1907, she began her career as a dancer before trying her hand on the screen. It did take until 1925 for her to get her name in the credits, which, yes, goes against the rules the Wampus set out for themselves. And they were probably wishing they had stuck to their rules, as the one credit she got, a supporting role in a film called Don't, would be it for Evelyn for the next two years. Evelyn's career would have been a lot different were it not for one big thing and possibly one smaller thing. The smaller thing is that she filmed scenes for Josef von Sternberg's The Exquisite Sinner. An on-set photo featuring Evelyn is in Screenland's May 1925 issue, but the film was never officially released. In fact, the whole thing is a confusing mess. Basically, MGM hated The Exquisite Sinner so much that they refilmed it. Sort of. They used the same sets and costumes and top stars, not Evelyn, with a new script, title, and director. It turned into Heaven on Earth, which was released in 1927. 
It's impossible to say how Evelyn's career would have been impacted had the exquisite sinner ever seen the light of day, but it couldn't have helped to be in a shelved production either. The bigger thing that happened to Evelyn is that she got run over. Injured in an auto accident, Evelyn Pierce, one of the 13 Wampus Baby Stars of 1925, may never dance again, reported Photoplay in their August 1925 issue. Miss Pierce, who is a dancer of some note both on the stage and the screen, was injured in the hip and spine when an automobile ran her down. She is suing for $10,000 in damages. Poor Evelyn! While post-recovery, Evelyn did manage to make a couple of features and supporting roles, her work was sporadic at best, and by the early 1930s, she was only appearing in uncredited bit parts. Were the Wampus right about Evelyn Pierce? She's not the first Wampus baby to have her progress stopped by a twist of fate. I don't know if she ever got her ten grand, but she definitely didn't get stardom. Natalie Joyce One of Natalie Joyce's first comedy shorts with the Christie Company, which she joined in the early 20s after a stint as a Ziegfeld Follies girl, was in the highly publicized two-reeler Roll Along in 1923. She, along with the rest of the entirely white cast, performed in blackface, and the whole company really seemed to think they were being very cutting-edge. Al Christie is responsible for many innovations in filmdom, says a print ad for the film. His newest innovation, like many others, is as old as the American theater, but has never been utilized to any great extent in pictures, until in the two-reel comedy roll along. The vast possibilities of blackface humor are exploited in a big way for the first time. It goes on to say, and this is fucking rich, that this is a genuine story representing the black community. Of course, all of this was horrifically racist, harmful, and degrading. And it was popular, setting Natalie up as one of the go-to Christie players. She was born as Natalie Johnson in Virginia circa 1902. Fellow Wampus Baby Star of 1925, Olive Borden was her first cousin, and the girls dreamed of a more exciting life for themselves. Natalie and a sister of hers left first for the Follies and then for Hollywood. In the lead-up to her appearance on the Baby Stars list, Natalie appeared in a whole bunch of shorts for the Christie Company, of varying degrees of abject horribleness, and was named as Neil Burns' new leading lady in 1924. It doesn't appear that their on-screen partnership lasted beyond a couple of shorts, but it was enough, especially since the Wampus that year had such a low bar, to get Natalie on the list. She wouldn't really take the title and run with it, continuing to only appear in comedy shorts for the next two years. Moving over to Fox, she did finally appear in some features in 1927, most notably pairing with cowboy star Tom Mix in The Circus Ace, and the following year in Daredevil's Reward. Though in one review of the Circus Ace in Motion Picture News, they said, Natalie Joyce has a mighty attractive screen personality. Neither gave her the boost that her career desperately needed. In 1929, she re-signed with Christie, returning to shorts rather anticlimactically. Shorts of no acclaim, and smaller and smaller roles followed until she finally left the screen for good in 1932. The Wampus, needless to say, were quite wrong about Natalie Joyce. But what of her cousin, Olive? Olive Borden Max Sennett is at it again, insists a headline in Picture Play's March 1924 edition. In it, they take us through Senate's roster of featured bathing beauties, ending with, And Olive Borden, a peppy brunette, 17 years old, who came from a Baltimore convent a year ago to start in pictures as an extra. They note that she has the most promise of the lot. The convent is an oft-repeated little tidbit. 
She may have spent some time educated by nuns, but I believe it's included to paint a picture of a dreamer, a girl from a respectable home who simply had to defy expectations and go after her ambitions. In reality, Olive Borden, born in October 1906 in Virginia, shared her ambitions with her mother, Sibby. Sibby was widowed when baby Olive was only a year old, and she worked as a housekeeper in a hotel. When Olive and Sibby saw cousin Natalie Joyce enter show business, they were inspired. What did Natalie have that Olive didn't? Mother and daughter headed to Hollywood around 1922 when Olive was in her mid-teens. Within a year, she had joined Senate Studios, and by 1924 was a steady feature in Hal Roach comedy shorts. She made at least 22 reelers that year, and her buzz was growing and growing when she landed on the Wampus Baby Stars list. It was right around this time that she met producer-director Paul Byrne. Byrne is best known today for his marriage to Jean Harlow and his death, which is constantly speculated about. The key thing, in my opinion, to know about him is that regardless of the smear campaign that happened after his death, in life he was well known as a genuinely nice and generous person. When Olive crossed paths with Paul, he was impressed by her and cast her in two of his films at Paramount in 1925. The Dressmaker from Paris, where she was uncredited, and Grounds for Divorce, where she was credited in a small role. In the first, she played a model and was, as was pretty standard production practice at the time, supposed to supply her own wardrobe. Knowing that she couldn't afford a new dress, Paul Byrne bought her one out of his own pocket. After Grounds for Divorce, more supporting roles followed, and then she landed her first big leading lady opportunity against Tom Mix in The Yankee Senor. Why, yes, she did play a Mexican character. Why do you ask? This led, according to the Exhibitor's Herald, to Olive being signed to Fox for a five-year contract at the end of 1925. Everyone was very excited about Olive at this point. Olive Borden runs off at a gallop with acting honors, says a review in Motion Picture News of 1925's The Happy Gallop, in which she had a supporting role. Olive Borden gives more promise than any young lady seen on screens in months, says another. And of course, it wasn't just her talent that got her noticed. Beauty and Olive Borden go hand in hand, declared Motion Picture Magazine. And Screenland says, This young Borden person has a pair of big black 200 candle power glims. They mean her eyes. A glance from her makes every male within eyeshot conscious of his hands and feet as he immediately feels the urge to become protective. Her figure, well, her figure doesn't lie even if it does make some of the big movie twinklers jealous. Fox, knowing they had someone special on their hands, immediately put Olive in her next picture filming in the autumn of 1925 on location in Wyoming. Directed by John Ford, Three Bad Men would also bring someone special into Olive's hands, her co-star, George O'Brien. I've mentioned George O'Brien briefly on an earlier episode of this podcast just to say what a hunk he was. Will you take two young, single Hollywood stunners like that to Wyoming for a few months, and it's no surprise that they fell head over heels for each other. Side note, it did take months non-consecutively to film the epic western, as several of the stars, including Olive, got sick with a bacterial infection during filming. But back to the romance. Everyone loves it when two hot people are in love, and Fox quickly capitalized on George and Olive's relationship, by pairing them on screen together again in Fig Leaves. Released before Three Bad Men, since the filming of that took so long, Fig Leaves, directed by Howard Hawks, let the couple wear all kinds of skimpy costumes. It was inspired by Adam and Eve, and be generally funny, charming, and romantic with each other. They have turned cute Olive Borden loose in this film, and what a beauty she is! said Motion Picture News about fig leaves. 
Being cute in skimpy costumes, by the way, became a staple of Olive's filmography. Being very sexy was basically her typecasting. She was by no means a vamp. Vamps tended to lean more devious and dark, and she wasn't quite the what they often would describe as a boyish flapper either. Those characters tended to have more agency. Many of Olive's roles were just centered around being exceptionally beautiful and charming, like when she played a very sexy woodland nymph, as described by the film Daily, in The Country Beyond, 1926. Depth to her roles or not, Olive quickly became one of the top stars at Fox. She was earning $1,500 a week in 1926, which in today's money is equivalent to, let me look it up, just quite a lot. Remember that just four years before, Olive's mother, Sibby, had been supporting her teenage daughter by working as a hotel housekeeper. Now they lived together in a mansion Olive bought, surrounded by staff. Olive became known as one of the best-dressed young ladies in Hollywood, and she and her mother lived in luxury with a chauffeur and a fleet of cars. Much of this was paid for on credit, despite her income. Olive was working hard for her keep, with six figures released in 1926 alone. The next year brought The Joy Girl, which also became a nickname for a while, and several other hits. It also brought a lot of publicity. She was on the January 1927 cover of Photoplay. Inside, they gush about her meteoric rise, and of course about her love life. George is very handsome and very charming. Olive isn't married, and neither is George, but Hollywood whispers that they soon will be to each other. Olive Borden is or should be the answer to every extra's prayers, began a profile on her in Motion Picture Magazine's July 1927 issue. She is living irrefutable proof that if you are born with flashing eyes, cascading black hair, scintillating teeth, and skin like distilled sunshine, you too can get in the movies. Fashion stories, exclusive portraits, and more hints of marriage filled the other fan magazines. For their May issue of Photoplay, they headlined a piece, Acquiring a Taste for Olive, and oh, how easy that is to do. The profile mentions her It Factor. This was the same year Clara Bow had her career-defining role in It. The piece also mentions her devoted mother and her humble beginnings. It also makes an interesting claim about Olive's perspective. Olive, as you can see, is still unaware that she is a big star. She still believes that stunt scenes should be performed without the aid of a double. She hasn't yet asked for gauze photography. She doesn't want to select her own stories or produce her own pictures. She still thinks that she is awfully lucky to be a star at all, and doesn't believe that the public is in her debt because she condescends to make pictures for them. Well, at first glance, this may seem like a measured attitude of a humble star. What it really is, is a warning to Olive. Behind the scenes, she was getting fed up with the types of roles she was being provided. She wanted to grow as an actor, not simply prance around in her underwear, and she began to complain. As she said a few years later, ironically to photoplay, I begged and pleaded for better roles for so long that when finally my temper flared, they were shocked and called me temperamental. And that warning they gave in 1927? Stay humble, be compliant, be quiet. Asking for more is asking for trouble. As far as Fox was concerned, they were giving her more than enough. And certainly, she was getting expensive. By the end of 1927, she was costing them $2,000 a week. I can't say how much she was earning them, but it was more than that. Fox executives approached her about renegotiating her contract to a lower salary, something also being done at other studios as a cost-cutting measure. And Olive probably in different words, but we can't be sure, told them to fuck off. 
Her final film with Fox was released in December that year. Imagine a beautiful bird flying so fast and then smacking right into the side of a building. That is what happened to Olive Borden when she told Fox to fuck off. Some publications were sympathetic. Because she wouldn't cross streets in a nighty, said Motion Picture Classic, they called Olive Borden high hat. Others less so. Don't get sassy to producers in Hollywood, tisked photoplay. She was off screen for six months. During this period, her relationship with George O'Brien, which had been going strong and involved an engagement, crumbled. They would remain on again, off again for a couple more years, but a happy ending seemed more and more unlikely. Reportedly, George's family were wary of Olive and her spending. She sold her mansion, cut down on her household staff, but she had gone into substantial debt. She and Sibby moved into less flashy accommodations. Olive did return to films, but nothing with the level of pull her work at Fox had, despite remaining in demand. Studios like Columbia, FBO, and Tiffany Stahl could not solve the problem of wanting classier roles. And now, with a reputation for being difficult, Olive had to tread lightly. She continued to work steadily in starring roles, just in films of diminishing importance until 1930, after which she left Hollywood for New York to try her hand on stage. She would later make a few more appearances, but nothing of note. Nothing that would bring her even close to her short-lived glory that she experienced at Fox. Her life, post-Hollywood, was complicated and bittersweet. She married twice, both ending poorly, including one husband who was a bigamist. She grew a dependence on alcohol and struggled profoundly. But she was also a war hero. She joined the WACs and got a special army commendation for her bravery. After the war, Olive and Sibby lived and worked together at the Sunshine Mission for Women and Children. Olive, who once indebted herself to live the life of a glamorous movie star, scrubbed floors and took care of abandoned babies. Olive Borden passed away at just 41 years old, in her mother's arms, from pneumonia in 1947. For a brief moment, she was a star who burned as brightly as any of them. She died in relative obscurity, save for the people who loved and needed her the most. To them, she was a star forever. Dorothy Revere Dorothy was born around 1904 at the earliest, into the Valguera family, well-known at the time, dancers in San Francisco. She took up the craft herself and was appearing on stage as soon as she left high school. According to a newspaper profile in 1931, she was first spotted by producer Harry Cohn at a nightclub, signed to a contract, and whisked away to Hollywood. But this appears to be Dorothy rewriting history a smidge. Her first on-screen appearance was in 1921's Life's Great Question from Quality Film Productions, filmed in her hometown of San Francisco. It was there that she met the film's writer-director-producer Harry Revere. Though he was about 14 years older than her, they fell in love and married. While Life's Great Question does appear to have gotten distributed by Cone Brandt Cone's Film Sales Corporation, the precursor to Columbia, and Harry Cone probably was trolling nightclubs for teenage girls, he really shouldn't get much credit in this case. Harry Revere, on the other hand, was inspired by his new child bride and quickly gave her the starring role in his next picture, The Broadway Madonna. She was credited under her married name, the one that she would keep for the rest of her professional career, Dorothy Revere. It must be very flattering to have your man write, direct, and produce a whole movie in your honor. Too bad it wasn't any good. 
It looks like, and probably is a deliberate effort, to supply a certain market which caters to the sensation-loving class of picture patrons, those who like any kind of degenerate theme that you can hand them, and the more meller, the better they like it, said the film daily. Meller, by the way, means melodramatic. They go on to add, Production values are below the average, and there is little talent in the cast. Dorothy Revere is artificial in her playing, but may register with the vamp-loving crowd. The titles are poor. The ads for Broadway Madonna don't really do much to make you think that that review is wrong, because they're very over the top. Rattling plot, lavish scenes, bizarre costumes, great suspense, great mystery, big love, big hate, the furious nightlife of the wickedest city in the world. This one has class, Anything that screams in all caps that it has class never does. In 1923, in press about another collaboration with Harry Revere, although he's not mentioned in the article, Camera says that that year's The Supreme Test would be Dorothy's debut screen role. Clearly it's not. I really don't know why I wandered into pictures, they quote Dorothy as saying, completely failing to mention that her husband had an influence there. Again, there's no mention of him at all, of course, and there's some confusion regarding this film, as while Harry seems to have started directing the production, he handed it off to at least two other directors at different times. I shan't speculate too much, but I do wonder if this had anything to do with the Revere's marriage. In 1924, though they were still married, Dorothy finally started getting attention for roles completely unrelated to her husband's productions, although she still did one or two of those. Her other films weren't necessarily huge pictures or all-important parts, but with 16 credits that year alone, it did make a lot of sense for her to be on the Wampus Baby Stars list. 1925 finally brought a long-term contract with Columbia. That's Harry Cohn, who later was given credit for discovering her, though as I mentioned earlier, that was a stretch. Cohn has a well-deserved reputation as a world-class creep. But in the 1980s, Dorothy confirmed to interviewer Hans J. Wolstein that she had a love affair with Cohn. This might explain, more than him simply being her boss, why he's given so much credit. Columbia during this time period was a step up from working with her husband, that's for sure, but it was only just scraping itself out of its poverty row origins and not doing such a great job of it. They switched names from CBC, Cone Brant Cone, but also mockingly called Corned Beef Cabbage, to Columbia in 1924, and were still making films with tight budgets and often gritty storylines. Listen to this synopsis from IMDb of An Enemy of Men from 1925. Norma Bennett, Dorothy Revere, after her younger sister Janet, Barbara Luddy, is deserted by her husband and dies in childbirth, vows to make all men suffer. Ooh. This was just one of a whole bunch of films that starred Dorothy at Columbia, and they loaned her out to more prestigious productions, too. 1926's The Far Cry with First National is one where she supported Blanche Sweet, she was also supposed to be in The Hooded Falcon with Rudolph Valentino, but the Vanity Project was never actually made. Still, Dorothy was pretty in demand. Many of her roles fell into the vamp type, but with a modern, saucy flapper twist. Picture Play did a profile on her in the June 1926 issue, saying that she has every sign of becoming one of the most effective screen sirens of the future. They note her beauty, her grace, and retell the story of her discovery. Nothing about Cohn discovering her in a nightclub this time. And once again, don't mention that she's married to Harry Revere at all. She wouldn't be for much longer anyway. Dorothy filed for divorce in September 1926 on the grounds of non-support. I have a feeling that they'd been living separately for some time, and this seems to confirm something similar. Really, she had been working without him for a number of years by this point, and was all the better for it, even if her home turf wasn't very glamorous. In 
the Caviar of Poverty Row, Pitcher Play calls her in July 1928. They talk her up, praise her beauty and her performances, and explain how she gets loaned out to bigger studios because they often need a certain je ne sais quoi that only Dorothy can provide. The profile also revealed some brand new information, as the author explains how she tried to pin Dorothy down for an interview. She simply ignored for days and days my telephoned request for an interview. That might mean any of several things. That she had developed the overworked Maud Adams complex which leads young artistes to seclude themselves from the public prints and sit home wondering how long it will have to be kept up before someone notices how aloof they are. It might mean that she was one of the younger cinema set with so many dates with college boys that a prying interview just couldn't be worked in anywhere without interfering with something more interesting. Or it might mean, prosaically enough, that being under contract to Columbia meant working sixteen or eighteen hours a day. I feared the worst, which was the first that I mentioned. About the time I despaired of ever hearing from her, the phone rang, and one of those friendly, confiding, sweet voices said, I'm awfully sorry, but I simply couldn't attend to anything. My baby has been sick all this week. Ya baby? Excuse me, Dorothy, you're what now? When I came across this interview, I was knee-deep in Dorothy Revere's life, poring over, in particular, nearly a decade's worth of publicity, and this is the first I had ever heard of a baby. There was no inkling of it. Bravo to Dorothy for keeping her private life very private. She also remarried, much to Harry Cohn's chagrin, around this same time, and that wasn't reported on for a full year. I've already noted that all mentions to her first husband were kept on the down low for years. But yes, it turns out that they also had a daughter together. Doria Revere was born on August 19th, 1922. All the way back in episode 2, I told you about Wampus Baby Star of 1922, Claire Windsor. Claire was the only baby star that year to have already had a baby of her own. As far as I know, Dorothy Revere is only the second baby star ever to be a mother at the time of her appearance on the list. Their public approaches could not have been more different, as Claire was very open about having a child, to the point of using the little guy in her publicity. Whereas here we have Dorothy, not mentioning her daughter at all until 1928. Some of it may be down to type. Claire played quite elegant characters, mature and dignified leading ladies. Dorothy was often playing women in desperate circumstances, like a woman arrested for murder in The Siren, 1927, or kidnapped with a secret past in The Warning that same year, or characters meant to be generally sexy in a vampy, flapper way. This was seen as incongruous to motherhood, so having a child, especially in the early part of her career, could have proved troublesome for Dorothy. In the Caviar of Poverty Row piece, they don't act at all shocked by the sudden appearance of a six-year-old, which was surely a strategic choice. Dorothy was ready to reveal her daughter's existence as a natural progression of her career, but it was to be done carefully and with as little fuss as possible. She says, when they finally pin her down for the interview, that she played vamps and wild women in the accepted manner, but the messaging is clear. The real Dorothy, as much as she is ready to show you, has much more class and heart to show on screen than her Columbia contract or previous roles would lead you to believe. Columbia was happy to have Dorothy's prestige grow. If she was the Queen of Poverty Row, as she was sometimes called, and simultaneously she was in demand for more highbrow roles at other studios, it meant that not only could they charge more for loaning out her services, but the rise of Dorothy Revere, as Screenland dubbed it, 
would rise the tides at her home studio, too. A nice example of this is a plum-supporting role that Dorothy had in The Iron Mask, 1929, a part-talkie through United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks. Dorothy Revere takes a good long look at herself and says, Well, old girl, you've finally rung the bell, says Photoplay's June 1929 edition under a photo of Dorothy gazing down at a hand mirror. For four years, Dorothy has been skirmishing around the seats of the movie Mighty without quite getting the chance at the throne. Baby stardom in 1925 just meant baby stardom and nothing more. But in The Iron Mask with Doug Fairbanks, she did a stunning piece of work and followed it up with another in The Donovan Affair, an all-talker, and now she's riding high. She got more publicity than ever before as the 1930s dawned, further bolstering Columbia's reputation and proving that the studio was getting deeper pockets. And again, it played fast and loose with the truth, like when the new movie magazine implied in 1930 that she, a baby star of 1925, mind you, had only been in Hollywood for two years. Then, right around 1931, her publicity all dries up very abruptly. With her second marriage, she was less interested in maintaining a close working relationship with Harry Cohn, and she left Columbia to freelance. While she continued to work steadily, on her own she wasn't able to negotiate the higher-end projects that she had been loaned out on during her time at Columbia. As the decade progressed, she was still getting starring roles, but in movies that were getting worse and worse and worse. Her final appearance came in 1936. Dorothy Revere, woman of mystery, queen of poverty row. And a star, yes. The Wampus, they can count her as that in her way. The Wampus Baby Stars of 1925 were a curious lot. Why were some of them even there? But a very select few, though they are little remembered today, rose ever briefly to the level of true stars. And who wouldn't want to watch an Ina Gregory reality show with me? That's a wrap on 1925. Join me next week when I tackle the banner year that was 1926. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.